Hello and welcome back to the ESDF podcast. My name's Chris Darwin and I'm the editor-in-chief of ESDFanalysis.com and I'm joined as ever by our lead analyst and star of the show, Lee Scott. Hello, Lee. Hi, Chris. And how are you doing in Bonnie, Scotland this this fine morning? I'm fine. It's, it's raining, so pretty normal for, for Aberdeen, to be honest. And all the snow is gone then? It's gone for now. Apparently it's coming back again, so... No, we'll just wait and see whether I can make it to work or if I have to ski into work or something. Well, you could we could do podcasting on skis next week, which would exactly make it make it very very different. Right then, back back to the normal stuff that we should really be talking about. We're going to be covering four subjects as ever today, guys, and those four subjects are Paris Saint Germain. Chelsea, Red Bull Salzburg and Jaden Sancho, who made his way over to Borussia Dortmund in the summer. So, Lee, we'll start off with Paris Saint Germain. PSG have been threatening for a few seasons now, having had vast amounts of money to go and play with, to sort of take over European football and become a dominant force, but it hasn't quite worked for them yet. What went wrong with PSG in the Champions League this season? I think it's difficult to put it down to just one one factor, to be honest. There, there are a number of different things kind of came against them at the same time, against Real Madrid in the, the round of 16. First of all, obviously, they're, they're unfortunate to have drawn Real Madrid at that stage, really. Yeah, the, the year before, it was Barcelona at the same stage. So they, they've been slightly unlucky in the teams that they've, they've been getting and trying to get past. But at the same time, the, the, there were definite issues with Unai Emery, the, the PSG coach, with his choice of tactics, with his selection of players. And obviously, the, the injury to Neymar had a, a large impact on the second leg too. So uh, I think it's difficult just to say that there was one reason and one reason only that they failed to get through that round and, and get towards the quarterfinal stage. They just they seem to be a little bit stuck at the moment. I mean, domestically, they're really... They're, dominant domestically at this stage so the Europe is really the only frontier that they are the owners of the club are interested in at this point so you have to wonder exactly what they need to do to take the next step. I guess an obvious question there is had Neymar been fit would the result have been different? I don't think it would have been I think Neymar's form over the last four or five weeks before that injury, I think his form had dipped significantly. I think he really struggled in the first leg against Real Madrid. Obviously, going from the the kind of players that he's up against in Liga to the Champions League, there's a large gap there. I think that Neymar, it can be difficult sometimes for players to, to maintain a certain level of form if they're up against opponents that are at a lower standard than they're used to, you almost become a little bit complacent. And I think that was sneaking into Neymar's game a little bit. Winning the Champions League, I mean, it's not it's not just sort of PSG that are struggling to, to do it as quickly as they might have liked. I mean, you've got Manchester City who are in a, in a very similar situation, really. Is it just a case of, again, in that tie, Real Madrid's just experience of those, of those big matches? Because Madrid are having, by their standards, a shocking season in La Liga. But then they've got the experience of that particular situation and they know how to win those types of games. Was that something that PSG are just utterly lacking at, at this point in their journey? Yes, I think so. To be honest, when the, the draw was first made and you saw PSG against Real Madrid at that point, you would have had PSG out as the favourites. As you say, Real Madrid are, are suffering a, a terrible season by their own high standards. Domestically, they're, they're really struggling in La Liga. 
to put any kind of form together, but you always have that feeling that a team very similar to Juventus in that in that sense that you always know that on the European stage, Real Madrid and Juventus will raise their game and that they will find that form. And as you say, the experience in their squad, they've won how many Champions Leagues, how many La Ligas over the last decade alone. And the experience in that squad and the players that they have at their disposal, you almost always feel that they will find a way. Whereas with PSG, they, they have talented players in the squad. They've recruited, I wouldn't say they've recruited altogether well, but they have recruited some interesting pieces for their first team squad. And I think that the one thing that they are missing is the, the experience and the ability to take it to that next level. It's almost mental strength as much as it is technical or tactical strength at that stage. And you, you mentioned the uh, the experience of taking it to that next level. I mean, even by saying that, that almost puts an instant question mark over over the manager himself or the head coach, sorry. Yeah, I think it's fair to say. Um, I don't think that Unai Emery will be in charge of PSG next season. As I touched upon earlier on, the, the owners of PSG, the, the Qatari family that own the club, they're very much focused on European success and that's that's as much to raise the brand of PSG um, worldwide as it is to, to just win the trophy, I think. So it's very important for their business model as well as for the sporting model of the club that they get that kind of success. And I think now they've lost patience to an extent with Unai Emery. I mean, don't forget, Unai Emery was, was relatively successful with Valencia, with Sevilla. He's, he's a very good tactical coach. But the question remains whether he's good enough to coach players at the highest level, whether he has the interpersonal man management skills that you really need to, to get the best out of people at that stage. And then the, kind of the tactical know-how goes along with that. So when you get to the, the real super clubs, you can't really only have one strong facet of your, your managerial game, as it were. You need to be more well-rounded than that. You need to have different aspects that you can draw on. I think you touched on it perfectly there by saying relative success. And yeah, what what he did with Sevilla and Europa League success is, is obviously a fantastic thing that not many managers will look back on at the end of their career saying, well, I did that. But it, it is taking it up to, to the next level. And Emma, mm-hmm. I was, was he a surprise appointment for you back when he did get the PSG job? I think it did kind of come out of the blue. I mean... You hear the same argument around English football, for example, whenever a big job comes up, that there's a lot of criticism of the bigger clubs at the moment, that they only seem to be looking at a certain pool of managers to get their next appointment from, instead of going almost outside the box or or giving a younger, talented coach a chance at the, the top level. I think that when PSG appointed Emery, it was on the back of the success of the Europa League with Sevilla. That that kind of squad depth of, of talented, almost world-class players, if you like. And I think that's where he's fallen down a little bit. I, I certainly don't think that you know, Emery will go on to get another top job after this one. But he has certainly got a level, and he, he does excel at that level. The Sevillas, the Valencias, almost, uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be in England these days. But he will get another job in the back of PSG. This won't be the last that we see of him, but I don't think it'll be at the top level. No, I, th- I think uh, I think de- I definitely agree with that. Does does the lack of competitive domestic challenges make it harder for, for PSG on the European front? Because we, we spoke last week, I think it was, around Marseille, Monaco uh, and Lyon. But it's it still doesn't feel massively competitive in Ligue 1, we, even, even with those guys sort of kicking around. No, it isn't. Um, at this point, I mean, last season, don't forget, Monaco did win the league. So, so the, it is possible that another club can't come up and challenge PSG at, at that level. But 
any sustained success, I think French clubs are going to find it very, very difficult to to meet the the challenge of PSG and to go head to head with them. And I think, as I touched upon earlier on, I think that the the issue of complacency sets in to an extent with these players at PSG. They get so used to to not having to play up to a standard and still get three points, if you like. So they know that they don't have to be mentally switched on for the full 90 minutes against some of the teams that they play in domestic competition and that they can still come away with the win, as opposed to if you're up against opposition every week that are at or near to your level and that are challenging closely for domestic titles, then you, you know that you need to be fully switched on for the full game. And it's very difficult to go from a situation domestically where you're not fully mentally focused for a game to suddenly switch on that focus for for a, a one-off or a, a two-legged tie in the Champions League. I think that's where the issue comes for PSG. They find it difficult to transition from, from domestic to European games properly. Without, I don't doubt that their level of preparation is excellent. I mean, Uri Emery is, is a coach who's well-known for his almost the depth that he goes into when it comes up to the opponents that they're facing. So there, there will be a high level of preparation there. But in terms of the playing staff, it becomes difficult for them to to get themselves mentally set to face a, a, a competitor that's as good, if not better than them. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously Monaco pipped them to the title last season. But as you say, there's not the there's not the depth of, of quality in, in the French League as there would be in a Bundesliga or in a Premier League. But then... How did Real Madrid do it? Because you could argue that it's not massively dissimilar in, in La Liga. I mean, Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico are always the top three, but it's only been recent, recently that Atletico have really put themselves into that trio. Uh, and, before, and for a long period before that, it was Madrid and Barcelona. Yet they consistently managed to compete in, in Europe and obviously Madrid have gone on and, and done incredible things in recent seasons. I think that Madrid and Barcelona, Real Madrid, sorry, and Barcelona, I think that you almost need to hold them apart when you talk about teams that challenge in the European front. I think the pressure that they face internally almost focuses the players a little bit more. It's a very different atmosphere to play for a Real Madrid or Barcelona than it is for PSG. Look at Neymar, for example, at PSG. Neymar is is essentially allowed to do what he pleases. Paid an absolute fortune. They, they signed him for an astronomical fee. But now he's already making noises that he thinks he should be getting paid more money than he is now, having played for, what, a full six, seven months for PSG, he's already looking for more money. He falls out with teammates, he takes trips back to Brazil when he wants to, he, he travels across Europe to different functions. The pressure that they have from the PSG fan base, from the French media, they're not as used to the level of success there as they are at Barcelona and Real Madrid. So the, the press in, in Spain, the, the fan expectation, the club expectation themselves, uh, I think it's very, very different. And that's how Real Madrid and Barcelona really managed to focus despite the lack of domestic um, trouble that they face. And don't forget, I mean, as we already said, Real Madrid are, are struggling a little bit this season in Barcelona, running away with La Liga. But there's no suggestion now, as, as you get to the quarterfinal stage, there's no suggestion that Real Madrid will be an easy opponent. Yeah. Uh, I think that they'll still be very, very difficult. And that is the, the mental strength of the squad as much as anything else. So, so what's the next step for PSG then as a club? I think that they need to really look at their model. Uh, as things stand just now, they, they spent a lot of money. Everybody knows that they spent a lot of money since the investors came in and took over the club. And, and that's fine to a point. But there really needs to be more of a coherent plan of what they're doing. 
Um, they went out last summer, obviously, and signed Neymar. They, they signed Kylian Mbappe. The, the Mbappe deal is a loan with a future fee, so they will be due to pay the 200-odd million um, this summer to Monaco, so that, that money will be paid. But at that point, there becomes real issues around financial fair play for the club. That's why the, there's been a lot of information going around the press for the last six months or so that a number of PSG players are effectively for sale. We saw Lucas Muram leave to join Tottenham Hotspur, and that's one of the players that were almost on the fringes of the squad, so getting paid a significant sum of money, and the investment in them wasn't small when they first signed. But I think they really need to trim some of these players off of their squad. We, we may see one of either Julian Draxler or Angel Di Maria leave the club in the summer. Um, both of those are excellent players who do really well at Champions League calibre clubs, I think. But there, there really is no space in the squad for them at the moment. And then I think PSG really need to take a step back and look at how they're going to develop the next level of players. It's it's not sustainable for them to come out and just identify the next wonder kid and spend two hundred million on them. It's not something they can do. They need to turn internally to a point and, and look to sign players before they reach that level, as it were, or even just to develop players through their own youth system. And in terms of the coaching side of it, who do you think could be a potential replacement? It's hard to say. There's been a few names mentioned. I think that obviously some, like Jose Mourinho at Manchester United, they, they use their own links to PSG almost to secure extra support of the club they're at the moment. I don't think Mourinho is a likely coach. I think that at some point in the future we are going to see Pochettino coach PSG. Mm. Um, he has been quite clear that he considers himself, he loves the club having played for them and that he could see himself managing there in the future. I think he would be a very interesting choice but I don't think he's quite ready to leave Tottenham yet. I think that he'll still stay for at least one more season just to see if he can push them over that line. Beyond that, it becomes difficult. I don't think there are any French coaches that really stand out at the moment. Perhaps Leonardo Jardim at Monaco. Um, he would be an interesting choice. He, he knows the league. He's shown that he can get further in the Champions League as well. do some excellent tactical work in, in developing his young players. So there, there are options out there, but you can't rule out them simply turning round and, and suddenly plucking Carlo Ancelotti back and going the tried and tested route I think it's more important and I think it would be more beneficial for them though if they went to a, a fresher look and tried to find somebody who who could actually develop players as opposed to just look at the sign the next level player and, and take them in What about Antonio Conte? Yeah he's an interesting name um, I, I don't think it's any secret that he's likely to leave Chelsea at the end of the season my only question with Conte, I mean, we've seen it at Chelsea, we saw it at Juventus, we saw it to an extent with the Italian national team as well. He's not the easiest man to get on with if you're if you're a member of staff at the club or if you're the club's board. He's very much his own man and he demands things to be done the way that he wants them to be. And whether that's the model that PSG want to go down, I think that they want to exert a certain amount of control with the players that they bring in and kind of how they invest their money more than anything else. And it can be very difficult if your coach is as is, is awkward and as difficult to get along with as Conte is when it gets to that point, as I think that Chelsea board are finding out at the moment. Well, it's interesting that we uh, that we cleverly segue Conte into uh, <laughs> to, to the chat there. But it's, it's, it's a realistic shout, in my opinion, for, for PSG. I think uh, Conte will be leaving Chelsea in the, in the summer, if not before the summer. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, he will be looking for a high-profile job, and, and we think we all agree that PSG will be looking for a high-profile coach. So yes. So it, so it could well happen, which is going to lead us on beautifully to to the next segment of, of today's podcast, where we will be talking about Chelsea. So, Lee, Chelsea seem to be developing a a bit of a pattern at the minute. Win the league, be disappointing the next season. Win the league, be disappointing the next season. Why why have they regressed so much from what was a team that went on an incredible run of winning so many fixtures in a row to to being where they're at this season? It's really difficult to see. Chelsea are a, a strange club. Like you say, this has become a pattern. The last time they won the league, the season after, obviously, was the, the season where Jose Mourinho was, was eventually relieved of his position by Abramovich. And again, this season, Conte just doesn't seem to be get, able to get the same out of his players that he was last season. To an extent, I mean, you, you could turn around and say that the clubs in the Premier League may have found, may have, I don't know, planned a little bit better for the tactical setup that we saw from Conte last season. The 3-4-3 when Conte first came in, or the the 3-4-1-2, whatever it was, whatever system you want to to note it down on paper. It's very difficult when you just talk about numbers, but essentially the three at the back with the win-backs, that was the essential, the important part of the system that they used. It it was very difficult in the first instance for clubs in the the domestic league to, to cope with that. I think that Chelsea overwhelmed a lot of opponents with the different ways that they were able to attack and overload certain zones of the pitch. They were very good at getting the ball into the box and, and creating opportunities around the edges of the penalty area as well. Um, I think that that was an important factor in their winning league last season. But this season, they, they certainly don't seem to have the same fluidity in their play. And I think that can be partially put down to the fact that other managers and coaches have studied their style of play and are a little bit set up a little bit better to counter that. But at the same time, the players just don't, don't seem to be on the same level, which is strange. You almost get the impression that there wasn't the same amount of focus in pre-season as they had last year before they came into this season. The, the, the club seems to have taken a step back and just slowed everything down instead of looking to push on and, and to reach that level again this year. I also wonder whether, and it's a simple question really, would Chelsea have won the league last season had they had some kind of European campaign on the go? It's very possible that they wouldn't. I think that Conte came in last season. He found that the the extra time afforded by the lack of European competition definitely let him work a little bit more in the training ground. Um, That could be why they were tactically so impressive last season. They they were drilled very, very well. Every player knew his role and knew the roles of players around him and how that all interchanged and the interplay was very good. Obviously, this season, the the extra commitments to the Champions League make it a little bit more difficult with the midweek games. It's it's a more hectic, more filled calendar with more high-pressure games. So definitely, I think you're right. Saying that, I don't know who would have won the league last season if Chelsea had it because I don't think there were any teams that that really stood out last season other than Chelsea. Perhaps Spurs would have had a a better chance than they did. That could have been a possibility. But yeah, I think you've definitely hit something there. We also should talk about the, their recruitment strategy since winning the league. And it's it's one thing to watch Leicester City go out and almost suddenly just buy random players that you wonder how they're really going to fit into into their next sort of season. Because Leicester, to be frank, probably didn't have and probably will never have again the, the, the situation of purchasing a squad having won the Premier League. Chelsea have been here before 
having won Premier Leagues and then needed to reinvest and improve and strengthen. Yet their recruitment since they won the title last season has been nothing short of scattergun, surely. It's been it's been quite strange. And this is what I was talking about earlier on when we were discussing Conte to PSG. He's a kind of coach who, who almost goes into the half he, he he loses his temper and he, he sulks a little bit when he doesn't get his own way. I think we've seen that in terms of the, the recruitment from Chelsea. I mean, you look at some of the signings in the, the winter transfer window alone. Ross Barkley, extremely underwhelming. Um, Olivier Giroud is, um, albeit a, a decent Premier League level standard, you would say. His, his output is, is decent to a point. But some of the players that they were being linked to were, were just bizarre, the likes of Ashley Barnes at, at um, Burnley, who is having an excellent season in his own right, but is he the kind of player that Chelsea should be looking for to make the next step? You would kind of argue no. You even look at the, the signings that they made for the wing-back positions. Emerson Palmieri at Roma, he, he looked good for a period of time with Roma. He's, he's a good attacking left wing-back, but he's been injured for that long. We don't know if he still is at that same level or if he will have regressed when he comes back from his injury. Even Davide Zappacosta, who was signed for, on the right-hand side for the right wing-back role, there were certain aspects of his game with Torino which were excellent. His crossing accuracy ratio was one of the highest in Europe, and that was obviously something that, that specifically drew Conte and Chelsea to him, given that they like to get the ball in the box for a central fixed striker. But since he's came over at Chelsea, he's really struggled to make anything like an, the kind of impact that we kind of expected him to. And now you have a, a, a position with Chelsea where they've signed... Murata in the summer, they've signed Giroud and there are times when he's not playing either and he's focusing on going without a fixed striker. I don't quite think that the, the strategy in terms of recruitment from the club as a whole is meshing at the moment with the manager's view and things. But how much of an input does Conte actually have in terms of in terms of the transfers to Chelsea? I mean, there was a period of time where pretty much every single press conference that, that Conte was giving was basically saying these signings are nothing to do with me. And all right, I, th- I suppose Zappacosta probably was because the obvious lazy link is that Conte's Italian, Zappacosta's Italian, so there must have been some kind of sort of thing done together there. But not necessarily. And there is n- no way that you can imagine that Conte himself was saying, yes, please go and get me Ashley Barnes. And if you can't get me Ashley Barnes, go and get me Peter Crouch. And actually, if Crouchy won't come and we're not prepared to pay 18 million for him, let's go and get Andy Carroll. That can't have been the situation. Surely there's somebody else in the club driving that transfer policy. I think that Chelsea are potentially one of the most difficult to read in terms of exactly what their their structure is for recruitment. Earlier this season, Michael Enamalo, the the ex-Nigerian coach, or international, um, he he left the club. He was the, the club's director of football and director of recruitment and everything else. He had very close links to Roman Abramovich. And he seemed to be the, the, the focus for the club. He was the one that drove strategy. And now he's popped up as a, in a similar role at Monaco, which shows that he is quite highly thought of within European football. Mm. So there must have been an element there that he was doing something that, that was impressing people. And now you kind of take a step back and nobody's quite sure exactly what the structure is. Nobody's sure exactly how much of an input the the coach has, how much of an impact Conte has. Um, 
I think it's almost down to the fact that throughout the last 10, 12 years or so, Roman Abramovich has shown that he is more than willing to release a coach mid-season. He has no qualms whatsoever about firing somebody and taking somebody in on a caretaker basis. So it almost becomes the, the coach is secondary to, to the club then in terms of their recruitment strategy. His needs and his wants don't quite matter. They'll sign the players that they want and the coach will just have to deal with it and work with it. No, I think, that's, I think that rings true. And it's... But it has just proven to be so utterly random. And especially when you say that, as we saw in one of the recent games, that both Morata and Giroud were, were on the bench. Whereas the majority of Chelsea's success this season has come from a cross coming into, into the box. So there's then suddenly a complete discord with the, uh, with, with the tactical approach. Do you think Conte has lost his way tactically this season? I think so. I think he's trying to to cram too many new concepts into one system. And as we said, with Giroud and Morata both on the bench, he was looking to use a front three of Pedro, William, and Eden Hazard. All very, very good players, but all all really thrive in a set role. He tried to have Hazard playing centrally, playing as a false nine, if you like, and that becomes very difficult. A false nine was obviously made made famous. It's it's a concept that's been around for a long, long time. But it really became more in vogue over the last modern football, really, with Pep Guardiola turning Lionel Messi into a false nine at Barcelona and his all conquered Barcelona side. And that was very much a, a concept used in a structure that played to its strengths. Whereas with Chelsea, with their, as we've said, they, they like to get the ball wide, they like to get the ball in the penalty area. There, there's not so much interplay through the centre, Cesc Fabregas isn't quite the, the player that he was maybe five or six years ago. His creative force, I think, now is is, in, is regressing significantly. So they, they're more apt to attack down the wide areas. And that leads to Eden Hazard becoming a little bit isolated if he plays in that withdrawn false nine role. So uh, there just seems to be... The, the structure that he's looking to, to implement the system, it doesn't seem to work properly. And I think that comes down to the coach having trying too many different things and trying to get too many players into roles that they're not comfortable with. No, I, I, I would agree with that. And even with my basic tactical sort of knowledge, it, it strikes me that if you are playing with uh, with the false nine, you need you need the pace and the runners coming through from deeper positions to, to fill the gap that's being created. And if you're playing Chess Fabregas as one of those guys, there's an obvious hole in that system straight away because the guy just doesn't have the legs that, that, that he once that he once had to be able to do that. So so no, it's uh, it's it's fascinating to see that. And uh, we, we brought up something that we must touch on in a future podcast, Lee, so scribble this one down. You mentioned Pep Guardiola bringing the false nine thing back in back on vogue with uh, with with Messi I would suggest that maybe Messi was the guy who brought that back by telling Pep that he wanted to play century and then Pep's been fortunate enough to then get uh, to to be uh, labeled as the the guy who brought the uh, the false nine thing back into into modern football Potentially, that, that, I think that is something we should talk about in the next couple of weeks, just to see if we can figure it out. Yeah, it's it's, it's it'll be uh, be interesting to see uh, which which, uh, which side we end up on on that one. Because, uh, <laughs> but but that's I think uh, generally as a very very quick aside, I think that's a that's a big part of coaching as well. That a lot of tactical concepts, I think people sit there and imagine that a tactical concept is something that. Uh, a coach will have sat there since he was six years old and thought, right, this is how I want my team to play if I ever end up in a position of authority. Sometimes things cre- are created 
it flew sort of with fluidity that they just yeah. come up and then that's yeah. something that goes and i and i do wonder how much of of uh, the the Barcelona side of it did come from this fabled conversation where Messi said, "I want to play centrally," and Ibrahimovic knew that 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 his role at Barcelona was at an end. Anyway, let's stay with Chelsea because that's who we're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> now, if I'm Ruben Loftus Cheek and I've just been sent on loan to Crystal Palace, no disrespect to Crystal Palace at all, and then I see that Ross Barkley and before that Danny Drinkwater are brought into the club. I've got to be wondering what the hell's going on for, for my future at Chelsea Football Club. How, what, what are they doing and why are they doing it like that when then clearly got some very talented young players, but there's no clear pathway for them to come and play first team football? No, no, there certainly isn't. Chelsea have got a fantastic youth team, youth setup. Um, not only with the, the younger players that sign from abroad, that is part of the recruitment model. They do identify young players playing within Europe predominantly and they'll look to take them into the system at Chelsea. Obviously, the issues are, are very well documented going forward from that. They, these players will, will play to a certain level, but then they need to take the next step on their development. I'm very much a big believer that you need to be continually, continuously challenging young players. If, if a young player is playing too much in his comfort zone, I don't think he's developing properly. And that very much becomes an issue. So when these young players are playing in the youth leagues, in the under-23 league, in the Europa Youth League even, and they're dominating to, to a point, and that's great for Chelsea. It's great for the, the PR of the club to see these these young players playing so well and going off on international duty and playing well for England and other, other nations too. But I think that there needs to be an element where these players then need to have a way into the first team. And you're right to talk about Loftus-Cheek. He came into the England setup earlier this year and, and by all accounts was excellent when he made his debut for England. Um, his level of technical ability in the final third in particular, I think, is something that, that England could really use going forward. But it's also something that Chelsea could use. And you're right, Danny Drinkwater, Ross Barkley, even Fabregas with his form this season, are they any better than, are they providing a better output than you would have got if you'd given Nathan Chalaba or Ruben Loftus-Cheek more first-team minutes? I don't think so. I, I think that there's something very wrong at the club in terms of the way that they, they distribute their first-team minutes. I think that they need to be a little bit more open to giving these younger players more of a chance. Look at Dominic Solanke, who, on the back of an excellent performance for England in the, in the summer for the youth team, he moved to Liverpool because he didn't think he would get the chance at first-team level at Chelsea. And chances are he was right. Daniel Sturridge before that left the same way, same path, because he saw his route to the first team blocked. It's all very well for Chelsea to have these players develop up to a point, but then just to use them as, as commodities that they could sell off to make a certain amount of profit for for the youth system, as it were, that's not exactly the, the overall point of a youth system, especially not one as good at Chelsea's. They need to be producing players for the first team. I mean, I completely, completely agree with all of that. There could be one saving grace that we might see this happen over the next couple of years in someone like Andreas Christensen, who was out, uh, I think it was Munchen Gladbach for, for two seasons and has now come back into the first team fold and has now gone as far as keeping the likes of Cahill and, and David Luiz out of the side uh, on, on regular occasions. Yes, his form's dipped a little bit in the, in the last few weeks, but to all intents and purposes, he's had a, a decent first sort of full season 
uh, playing first team football for Chelsea. Do you think that is going to be seen in a couple of years' time as, as a complete one-off? Or do you think there is actually a strategy that we're going to be seeing more results from in the next couple of years? I think the key will lie in, in who Chelsea appoint to follow Conte. As we've said, it, it's no secret Conte is not going to be at Chelsea next season. I think that that's when we'll really see if Chelsea are willing to take their their current model and adapt it to include more young players. And if they go for another tried to test the manager, as we said earlier on, the Ancelotti's, the Conte's, the, these managers, these coaches will come in and they'll be successful at first team level, but they won't really turn their attention to the youth team at all. It's almost as if they, they hold it as separate entities within the club. Whereas you look at a Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, for example, their approach is very much to see the youth team and the pathway to the first team as something that's sacred and very, very important. And they do put a lot of work into making sure that these youth team players are training with the first team and get exposure to the environment of first team football so that they may be ready to be called upon at some point in the season and they will get first team minutes. I think that the type of coach that Chelsea look to next will, will kind of inform us exactly what we can hope to see. But definitely, Christensen's come in and he's done a very good job. But he had to go away for two years at Mönchengladbach to play at a high level in Germany to, to finish that development. And that was, as I touched upon, that was a case of the young player being pushed and playing, you know, being challenged to keep developing as opposed to just being his comfort zone. I think that more English players and more players from the, the, the English youth, youth sides, they need to take that opportunity to go abroad to kind of keep challenging them and to try and finish off their development and prove that they can play at this level. I, I completely agree. And with that, I'm going to make an executive decision here, Lee, and actually switch the, uh, the next two uh, subjects that we're going to talk about. And we're going to move on to Jaden Sancho instead of Red Bull Salzburg next. Jaden Sancho then. So we've just talked about Chelsea and how English uh, young English players who are seeing first-team pathway somewhat blocked should uh, should take the, the opportunity to go and play abroad to further their development. Jaden Sancho did exactly that in the summer, moving from uh, from City to, uh, to Borussia Dortmund. Do you feel he's made the right choice then? I think it's still early days to say so. I think there's, there's no doubt that before he picked up an ankle, ankle injury, he'd played, I think, three first-team matches in a row for Borussia Dortmund, and he was, by all accounts, the star man on each, each occasion. For those that don't know, Jadon Sancho is a, a very, very technical left-sided player. He's got excellent control. He, he's also strong. He keeps the ball extremely tight to himself. He's extremely press-resistant. He can. He's got great vision in the final third, and he's capable of scoring goals as well. He was very, very highly rated by Manchester City. He was seen along the same side, along the same line. Sorry, as Phil Foden, um, another very excellent English player, and the two of them were kind of seen as the future for Manchester City as players who would go on to develop into first team players. In the summer, there was a little bit of a falling out. Um, I think it was regarding first team minutes. Jadon Sancho had asked Pep Guardiola and his staff if there would be more of an opportunity first team level. And I think that the, the answer he got is very much that he'd have to prove himself. He'd have to prove that he was ready for that exposure before he, he was just handed it. And then Sancho was left out of a training squad that went abroad, I think, to America. And at that point, he decided to leave the club. I think then we see kind of the, the intelligent side of Jadon Sancho 
when he left Manchester City, they were undoubtedly offers within England. The likes of Arsenal, I think, were, were very interested in taking him to, to the Emirates as a player who was young, English and extremely good. But he took a risk to move to Borussia Dortmund, to move to a new culture, a country where he doesn't speak the language. And I think you can only be impressed by a player of that age who does that. I, I would agree. For me, it's a bit of a shame that he went to Dortmund in the more in the sense that of the state Dortmund are in right now. Yeah, I think there's no secret this isn't a vintage Dortmund season. They, they've struggled under Peter Bosch beforehand and now Peter Stoger. Um, they're, they're not playing the kind of football that we, we kind of associate with Dortmund these days. And it'll certainly be challenging for them to get back to those levels next season, depending who's the coach of Dortmund. But what we have seen is... Sancho come in to that level. He was immediately handed the number seven shirt, mm. which is obviously an, an important thing within within the club. That was Dembele's number before he transferred to Barcelona for over a hundred million. So, so kind of that that straight away gave him a sense that he would be involved within the first team, which was important for Sancho. For him to come into the Bundesliga and to show straight away that he's not only up to the, the technical level of these young German players, but he surpasses it. He he was excellent when he when he played for the first team. His his ability to go past a man and to beat a man, I think, really stood out. So I think that going forward, we will see Sancho get more first team exposure. You just have to wonder if he would have gained that kind of exposure at Manchester City. He would have been excellent this season, for example, for for sitting in and gaining first team minutes when when Leroy Sané needed a rest from first team football there would have been an opportunity for him to rotate in and out and he would have developed developed under Guardiola so I think it shows the strength of, of mentality and it's his you know, strength of character from Sancho that he's he trusted himself he's essentially better himself by going abroad and hoping that he can prove to make it there I, I love the idea of uh, more young English players taking the opportunity to, to go abroad and, and sort of develop themselves not just as not just as footballers but as sort of like as, as individuals as well to get that extra level of maturity quicker and, and to be out of their be out of their comfort zone I watched a lot of Sancho over over the summer in in the youth tournaments, and again, he yeah. was, he was he, even even at that sort of level, it was edge of your seat stuff. Every time he got the ball, you felt like something good could happen, which was uh, something we need to we need to see more of in the certainly as an Englishman with the with the England youth squads. That that's great to see. But what is his ceiling? How good can he actually be? Because Lee, as an Englishman, don't worry about Scotland because obviously. This is more, far more important for that we talk about the English youth. We've seen a lot of players like Jaden Sancho over the years. We've seen a lot of players that were going to be this, that, and the other that were going to lead us to the, to glory finally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What is his ceiling? How good is he actually going to be? I think that we're talking about a player who will be England's most important player for the next decade, at least maybe fifteen years. If you, you look at the age he is at the moment, I think he's that good. Um, there was a really interesting interview with Sancho in the BBC, I think about a month ago now, where he talked about the reasons that he moved to Dortmund and he spoke about the kind of the way that he lives his life and he's very much focused on his football and development. I think he came across as a very mature, level-headed young man, which could be important. I think when when young players are are earning the kind of the money that they are. It, for some, football almost becomes secondary to, to enjoying the lifestyle. And I don't think that Sancho strikes me as that kind of player. I think that the last time I saw a young English player that I thought was this talented was Joe Cole. 
Now, obviously, Joe Cole never lived up to, to the hype. He never reached his potential in any way, shape or form. And to a point, that's because coaches at that time, uh, both domestically, both at club level and internationally, they didn't quite understand how to get the best out of a player like Joe Cole. I don't think that's the case with Jadon Sancho. I think that Sancho is almost the, the perfect fit for modern football and that he is so dynamic. I think he can play anywhere across the front line. I think we'll see him play for some uh, for a period as a striker. I think we'll see him as a number 10. I think we'll see him on the left, on the right. He's capable of all of these things. The The only limit that he really has is the limit that he puts on himself. I think that he'll stay at Dortmund for at least two more seasons. I think at that point we'll have a better idea of exactly what kind of player he's going to fully develop into. But if he develops and reaches his ceiling, I think that we're looking at a world-class player. I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball question in here then. Do you think Jadon Sancho would have a better chance of becoming what he really could be if he wasn't English? And what I mean by that question is that for a young English talent to come in, the amount of pressure that gets heaped on him straight away just because of where he was born is, is absolutely huge. And when you look at someone like Gareth Bale, for example, who uh, probably was considered of a similar level, uh, 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 Sancho at a similar age, etc., etc., because he came from, and I don't want to offend our seven Welsh listeners, uh, we, we might have more, <laughs> because if he, came, he came from a, a nation that had less pressure, shall we say, in terms of expecting to win European competitions or world competitions. He was given that little bit more time, I think, as an international footballer, just to go and, just to go and play. And Bale could do something brilliant for Wales, and that would be wonderful, but they wouldn't be expecting him to lead them to World Cup glory. Someone like Jaden Sancho is going to have a hell of a lot of pressure on him when he when he moves into the international arena, just like Joe Cole did before him, Wayne Rooney, etc., etc., etc. Would it be better for him, for example? And all right, I'm, I'm, I'll just say if he was Welsh, because then he could go and actually express himself and just be him, not Jaden Sancho. And I'm expected to win the World Cup for England. I think there's definitely some sense to that. Uh, even doesn't necessarily have to be Welsh, even German. Spanish, French to an extent. I think these nations have more of a, a track record at developing and integrating these talented youngsters in their squad than perhaps England do. And to a large extent, that's down to media pressure. Yeah. It's, it's no secret that in England, the, the media pressure on, on young players, on coaches, on, on fans even, it, it's huge, especially around the time of a major international tournament where suddenly you're built up to the sky and then within one or two group games you're, you're not straight back down again and, and your career is almost over as an international. I think there is that argument against English football. But then again, you look at the fact he's made a decision to move to Germany. That gives him a little bit of a buffer, if you like, from the English media. Even when he does make his, his debut, which I'm sure he will over the next season or two, and for the English England first team, for the, the senior national team, I think that the fact that he isn't based in England will kind of shield him a little bit from that pressure. Not wholly, I mean, it's, players read their own headlines, it's, make no secret about it. For all that players say they don't read the papers, I'm sure that the majority of them do. So he will be aware of it, but I think that the fact that he's so level-headed and mature and that he's made the choice to take himself out of his comfort zone early on, I think that he has a little bit more of an understanding about the kind of player that he is. I don't think he'll feel the pressure to quite the same extent that Joe Cole did. No, I think that's fair. and I, I, I think the, the last player to really break into the England team, but 
not many people knew too much about him because he was playing his football again in, in Germany with was Owen Hargreaves. Yeah. And uh, and he did sort of come in under the uh, the radar a little bit and then And did really well. Yeah, and did and did very, very well indeed and was one of the one of the best players, well one of the most important players in, in, in that side. So so maybe uh, maybe that will go well for him as well. The other thing that I'd bring into the Jaden Sancho mix and around his development on an international stage is are well first of all Southgate but then whoever might take on from Southgate in the in the next five years if a change is made which I'm sure there will be when England fail miserably again in <laughs> the next couple of international teams. I didn't see that but uh, are the English coaches themselves tactically capable to cope with a player of Jaden Sancho's potential I think that it's a very difficult question I think that English coaching British coaching as a whole, not just English, is very much lagging behind our, our um, continental counterparts, if you like. You'll see more of it than I, Chris, based out in Spain. You'll see different coaching methods that we have here. Um, certainly when I when I go and coach in education courses through the SFA, I'm continuously disappointed by almost the level, as much as the content of what we're being given. It's it's nowhere near the, the level it is, and that's only grassroots level. So you can imagine as you progress towards getting your, your A licence, your, um, your pro licence, for example, what kind of coaching, what kind of education our coach is getting. I think that Southgate is actually very well suited to the English national team at the moment. I think that he's a coach who doesn't have the same alliances towards club teams, if you like. Yes, he played for a few major club teams, but he's never coached one. So there's not that sense that he favours certain players. The fact that he has come through the system, through the under-21s, and he's now the, the senior coach, I think he will trust young players. And I think to a point in the final third with a player like Jaden Sancho, the, the tactical side of it kind of takes a back seat. It's a, the way that, for example, Pep Guardiola has often talked about coaching he he coaches you rigorously up until the final third and then he wants you to express yourself i think that's what we'll see through southgate and through sancho who takes over from southgate then that that becomes the issue if it's a big sam type then it may be that he struggles a little bit more to integrate into that kind of tactical system but if it's somebody like sean dykes for example i think that sean dykes is is an exceptional young coach um, I think that he's very much the, the best that Brett has to offer and I think it would be interesting to see him get a chance at the English national team I think he would find a role for Jaden Sancho in the final third and I think that Sancho would still thrive under him That's a very interesting comment that again will scribble down for a future discussion I think um, the, the, the future England coaches because I would have put probably Eddie Howe uh, around about the same level as Sean Dyche, but yeah. uh, on on paper at the moment, two slightly different styles of, of play, probably necessitated by the different clubs that they're, they're Yes, at. I think so. Um, for me, using Southgate as a, as a good example there for Jaden Sancho, it'll be very interesting to see how uh, Southgate utilises Raheem Sterling um, as, as we move in towards the World Cup, because you've got, again, a player who has got many many similar attributes I think to, to Sancho obviously more experienced and is playing at a much higher level already but that will be a, an acid test for me in terms of Southgate's ability to to handle players that don't fit an exact template of this type of player if that makes sense yeah that's a very good point so do you think this is uh, with Jaden Sancho do you think this will open up more pathways for, for the young British players to, to move abroad because we've seen Adamola Lookman another very very talented young player 
uh, moved from Everton to Leipzig on, on loan. We've got Reese Oxford uh, on loan out, out in Bundesliga again from West Ham. I think he's at Munch and Gladbach, but I could be wrong on that. You oh, he is. He is. So there's, there's already sort of uh, two or three uh, young English players out on loan in, uh, in, in Germany. Do you think there's going to be more? I think so. I'd, I think um, I know that Ralph Ranić, the director of football at RB Leipzig, he came out very candidly and said that they monitor the, the young English players and they've been very impressed with the standard in the, the international youth tournaments. Obviously, last summer England were, were dominant and they, a lot of those players are, are now in the radar of clubs like RB Leipzig, like Dortmund, like Mönchengladbach. Um, clubs that have a history of signing young players and allowing them first team minutes and allowing them to develop in the first team and that could be very important for these players going forward I think that hopefully we will see more players taking that chance, taking the chance to move to the Dutch league, to the Bundesliga, not so much Serie A, I don't think that Serie A is quite the right environment for a young English player at this point to, to develop properly. But I think certainly if, if you look at some of the leagues around Europe, there's room for these players to go in there and to, to make a, a mark for themselves to show that they're capable at the first team level. And at that point, they, they may be brought back into the fold by an English club. But certainly I really hope that we'll see more players, not just players, I think young coaches as well. I think like a Graham Potter at Osterlund in, in Sweden. He's shown that, that there is that kind of hunger, that there is a pathway for young coaches to get a chance in the game if they're willing to go a little bit out of their comfort zone. So I would hope that both players and coaches will start to look a little bit out with these shores, if you like. No, definitely. And again, it can only it can only benefit anybody who does it because the different experiences, the different cultures, the the different man management techniques you're going to have to utilize if you're a coach working with different cultures. That's that's all good stuff that you're not going to get from from just sort of doing the same thing day in day out in the environment you've been used to since since the day you probably first kicked a football. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyway. So, Lee, we're going to move on to our, our final segment of today and we're going to talk a little bit about Red Bull Salzburg. Lee, I'm going to be completely honest. I don't know a great deal about Red Bull Salzburg, which is why you're going to educate me in a few hours, <laughs> I, I am sure. So, so tell us a little bit more about them. Uh, so let's start off with their, their system of play. Tell us a little bit more about that. Their, their system of play is really interesting. Their head coach at the moment is Marco Rose. Uh, he was the head coach of the under-19 side that won the Europa Youth League last, last term. Um, probably a little bit... Better known as the fact that Rene Maric, who was obviously a writer at Spielberg-Lagerung, um, somebody who was very well known around the, the blogging circuit, if you like, he is the assistant coach for Marco Rose, so he's now working alongside Rose at the first team level at Salzburg. Um, their, their preferred system of play, they, they, prefer, they always play four at the back. The width is provided by the full-back, so the two, two full-backs for Salzburg are very offensive-minded. The key to the side this season, in my opinion, is the the holding midfielder, the, the the pivot that they play. So a single holding or sitting midfielder, and Diadi Samasuku. It's very difficult to say. Mm. He's a, a a Malian international, twenty two years old. 
he's very much the the next player from the the Salzburg pipeline who's going to be linked very heavily to a move this summer. There were already links to like the PSG in the winter transfer window. Um, I don't think that's a move that would make a lot of sense for him, but I very much see him as the replacement for Naby Keita at RB Leipzig when Keita moves to Liverpool. I think that Samuseku will come in there and just slot in seamlessly. Ahead of him, they, they tend to favour um, two or three central midfielders. Um, they don't play with a lot of width in terms of you know designated wingers, if you like. Rather, they play with central players who are allowed to drift out into wide areas or into half spaces. Um, ahead of that, there are always two fixed strikers. Um, Munis Dabua, who's an Israeli international, he tends to be the, the main striker at the moment. He's now been linked to Spanish sides in the media, the likes of Valencia and Sevilla, for example. Um, his goal-scoring record is very good, and they have three or four different players that they rotate into that those forward system, those forward roles. So they're very much a team with a lot of depth and a lot of rotation around different roles in the side. Um, they can be very interesting to watch. They, they press very well. They combine very well in the attacking phase. They, they like to play through triangles. So there's a lot of intricate passing movement, if you like. But they also don't play slowly. They, they're very much vertical and looking to get the ball from, from the back into the final third as quickly as possible. So they can then combine in the final third and try and get chances created. And obviously they're the side that have just beat Borussia Dortmund in the Europa League. So the the results tend to be seem to be following the, the model of play, if you like, and they, they're really excelling this season. And how do they go about identifying sort of uh, these these lesser known talents and, and bring in so many interesting young players? The, the facilities that they have they, in terms of talent identification and recruitment and then player development as well. It's almost second to none within European football at the moment. The, the Red Bull pipeline, if you like, is one of the most interesting in world football. The fact that they're able to identify these players, Naby Keita, Sadio Mane, Kevin Campbell, all players who came through Red Bull at one point or another and have gone on to, to bigger and better things in major leagues. And now you look at the likes of Diot Apicamano at Leipzig, who's been the centre-half. He's been heavily linked to a move to Barcelona and the press at the moment. He's another who was signed from French second division and played at Salzburg to develop and then moved on to Leipzig and, and has excelled. So they, they have they have pipelines. So again, as I talk, talked about earlier on, it's very, very important for young players to be continuously challenged. And I think that's something that Leipzig very much... That Leipzig, sorry, that Salzburg and Red Bull as a whole, they, they very much understand that. They have a partnership with Liefering, who are second division Austrian side. A lot of their younger players, as they, they come through the youth league, if you like, and then they, they go out on loan to Liefering and they, they get first team minutes at the second division level. Then the very best at that level get brought into the, the first team at Salzburg, they get first team minutes there, they develop, and then they can move along the pipeline. So the way that they identify, develop, and kind of build talent up to that point, I think is very, very impressive in European football. So we sort of got a, we, we got almost like a four-stage sort of pathway for, for players there, that they, 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 they come into they come into Salzburg, and then if get, go out on loan to Liefering, come back in, then they move up to the next level, which is sort of a Leipzig-type club immediately, or... A, a club of a similar similar ilk and then then they go from there to their big sort of their their top tier sort of side yeah. financially how does that how does that really then sort of uh that's that's probably another podcast in it in its whole self <laughs> I, I would imagine looking looking at the red bull 
the Red Bull sort of model. But I'm sure the uh, although the clubs are definitely financially independent, I'm sure everyone does quite, <laughs> does quite well out of uh, out of that structure. Yes, I think so. I think that when the likes of Apicamano and Nabi Keita. Peter Golaski, the, the Hungarian goalkeeper at Leipzig as well. All three of those moved from Salzburg to Leipzig and all three of those moved obviously for a, a certain fee and it's not a case of the, the transfer for free from one to the other. There is a, free, a fee paid by the German side to the Austrian side and that money can then be reinvested into further recruitment, scouting, development. That's how they kind of build up their facilities to the extent they are now. And I believe that at the moment the facilities within Salzburg are almost second to none within Europe. So they, they very much do extremely well. They position themselves well as a club who can develop and introduce talent to the first team. And I think there are a lot of scouts for major European clubs who are, who are looking very close at a number of their players. It'll just be a case of whether they, they continue to filter them through the next step at Leipzig or they, they start to sell them to the top level from Salzburg themselves. I think that's an interesting thing that we have to look out for in the future. Are there any players uh, in the side currently that could potentially miss out the Leipzig stage then and go into a, a Premier League side, a, a La Liga side, a Serie A side, even a Bundesliga side that isn't Leipzig? I think, as I already said, I think that Sam Isoko, the, the holding midfielder, I think he's already earmarked for Leipzig. I would be extremely surprised if he, he didn't make that move in the summer. Although there have been heavy links to other clubs, so it's possible. You never know. The likes of Bayern Munich and PSG have been linked to him. Um, I still think he'll stay at Leipzig, though, and he'll go there and develop for a couple of seasons and then move on. An interesting one is another Malian international, Amadou Haidara. He's a, a right-sided midfielder, a central midfielder. He's extremely technical, gift, technically gifted. He's a couple of years younger than Samasoku, so he has age on his side a little bit. He's still very young. He's been heavily linked to a move to Tottenham Hotspur. I think that's a link that doesn't seem to be going away. Oftentimes, you kind of see these links within the media, and then after a little while, they peter out when there doesn't seem to be any any fire, any substance, if you like. Um, Haidara is still a name that's been linked heavily to Tottenham, and he's a really interesting player. His profile is very interesting. He, he's capable of defending and attacking equally comfortably. He's very, very good on the ball, and he's he can run all day, so you can see certainly why Pochettino will have identified him as a player who would fit his tactical structure. Um, whether that move comes off, I'm not entirely sure. Again, we could see him go to Leipzig first. The, the other one that I picked out was a centre-half, a Croatian centre-half called Duje Kletakar. He's a player who I actually profiled for ESDF in my five defenders to watch in 2018 um, article that I wrote uh, a few weeks ago now. He's very, very good technically. He's great on the ball, taking the ball forward, but he's also an absolute rock defensively. He's a mountain of a man, very much in the, the Croatian mould, you know, this um, shaven head, huge, physically very strong quick so he's one that could be interesting for clubs especially in England I think or Italy I, again there's a very strong possibility though that he will just simply move to Leipzig and sit there and develop further there and they'll continue the pathway so it's all I think it's all about the way that they see the player and if they see the maximum value being extricated from the player now they may sell but they may prefer just to develop them that little bit more before they do if they are going to see sort of you mentioned three or four players there that could well be moving on in the in the summer how are they going to reinvent themselves again and continue this momentum that they've been building up over the, the last couple of seasons it's very simple they'll, they'll promote from within 
Um, they're not a club who I think will go out and make large, expensive signings. They may sign one or two for the first team, but in the first instance, they will turn to their pathway, the youth team, or to Leifering and look to see if there's a player there. The the best player in the entire system may actually be one who's not actually in the Red Bull Salzburg first team yet. He's still more at Leifering. The Hungarian international, or under-21 international, Dominic Soborsley, he is very much rated in the, the potential world-class bracket by those at Red Bull and those at Salzburg. So he's one, I think, that we will see at Salzburg next season. Um, and a tall, languid central midfielder who can pretty much do anything with the football. I think he's really a name to look for going forward over the next decade in European football. He's one that's going to be, become very well known. And I think that he represents kind of the model that they'll, they'll look to use if they do lose players this summer, and they will. I mean, there's no doubt that they'll have players move on to, to other teams. They can't have the level of success they have and, and hope to hold on to all the players at their level. I think that they will sell players and they will look to bring these new, younger players in and, and continue the cycle. And what do you think is going to happen with the, with the coaching team then? Because they're obviously uh, making people sit up and notice. And is the, is the development model similar for them? What, do you think Leipzig will be keeping a close eye on how they're progressing for the future? There's a possibility that's the case. I mean, I know that there are links between the two clubs in terms of coach education and, and kind of playing style, so you never know. Marco Rose certainly is turning a lot of heads within European football at the moment. Hey, whenever you see one of these, you know, top 20 managers under a certain age in European football, he tends to be in there. So I think there is a possibility that he will get a bigger club, a bigger move in the future. It'll just be a case of waiting to see exactly how long he wants to stay at the club. I think they, they're certainly in no rush to, to let him go. Indeed. And Austria, I mean, we're talking even before you and I started getting getting into football, league, so, so many, many years ago. Austria <laughs> were, were always one of those countries that were at the, the leading edge and pioneering in terms of sort of football and tactical ideology and everything like that. Do you think that with, with Salzburg at the moment, we could be seeing a bit of a rebirth as of Austria as being one of those nations? I'd like to think so. I think, like you say, it was the, the coffee shop kind of culture of, of Austria that you really saw certain teams develop and players develop through that, that model and suddenly they became one of the most, along with Hungary obviously, mm. they became one of the most interesting tactical sides in the 50s and 60s. I would like to see Austria get back up to, to a level but whether they do or not, I think it's dependent on other clubs out with Salzburg. Salzburg's very much a model in and of its own. I think the other clubs at their level and the standard there needs to raise as well and, and perhaps more exposure, if you like, for these players to European football through Salzburg will have a positive impact. So certainly it could all tie in together. Well, look, as ever, Lee, that's going to bring us to the end of uh, today's podcast, which has been, uh, for me, as ever personally, a very educational piece, which has been great. Are there, are there any particular pieces on ESDF this week that you would recommend our listeners go and take a look at? I think the biggest one that I saw... Um, I saw. I obviously read every single one of them before they go out. That's just part of the system that we use. Um, Alex Deaker um, wrote an analysis of the Barcelona-Chelsea match, the second leg. I think that was excellent for somebody who is relatively new to ESDF. He, he's been writing for other FMG sites and kind of said he wanted to try his hand at analysis. And for him to come in and put together a piece like that, I think it was a very good, very in-depth 
piece that hit and all the, the right facts if you like so i would certainly go and check that out fantastic stuff well look lee thank you ever so much for your time yet again uh we will be back next week with uh with another podcast but if people want to find you on twitter where are you you can find me on twitter at fm analysis great stuff uh, my twitter is at chris darwin fmg obviously you can head just head over to the website www.esdfanalysis.com where you'll find everything from match analysis player analysis and recruitment analysis as well as set piece analysis so plenty of good stuff for you to be getting your teeth into there this has been the esdf podcast powered by fmg mm-hmm.